0: Welcome to another new episode of the Sports as a Weapon podcast, a Chicano sports podcast on the entanglement of sports, radical politics, and working class sports fan culture. And don't worry, we talk about just sports too. So today I'm very excited to have um, Derek Silva from the End of Sport podcast on the podcast today. How's it going, Derek?
1: Uh, it's going well. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're, we're big fans over at the End of Sport.
0: Thank I'll you. I'm a big fan of your podcast. He influenced me to start my own one this summer. So, Much
1: appreciated. Much appreciated.
0: If you don't know about his podcast, go check it out. I know we share some listeners and comrades online on Twitter. But if you don't know about their podcast, I recommend it. If you want to plug it in, you could do so now.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. You, you can check us out at, at End of Pod on Twitter, on Instagram, www.theendofsport.com. If you're into the internet, um, yeah, check us out. I, I, I co host, I should say, I co host it mm-hmm. with my great, brilliant colleagues, uh, Drs. Johanna Mellis and Nathan Coleman Lamb, who are both awesome and wonderful people. Uh, and yeah, we we share a lot of similar takes, I think, with you, Miguel. So. Uh, yes. Yeah, check out. And
0: that's why I love love listening to your podcast. All right. So you guys are really good on your podcast of discussing the exploitation of college athletic workers. So that was pretty much the main reason I, I was wanting to have you on the pod because you guys are really great with that stuff and providing information to people on how the NCAA exploits their athletes. You, yourself, and your co host Dr. Joanna Mellis and Nathan Column Lamb wrote an article recently this past March when March Madness began the tournament. It's in The Guardian. It was called, I Sign My Life to Rich White Guys, Athletes on the Racial Dynamics of College Sports. It's a great article. I recommend you all to read that article if you have not. Could you talk about your article?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the the overarching kind of projects of our end of sport podcast that it's kind of grown into is also trying to give voice and amplify the the folks who we are talking about when we talk about exploitation in collegiate athletics. So the, the genesis of this particular piece, which was purposefully released the week before or the week of the start of the biggest tournament, the biggest revenue generating tournament for the NCAA, which is March Madness, was to try to amplify athletic workers campus athletic workers in their pursuit of fair and equitable working conditions in the NCAA and we talk to athletes a lot all of us um, have connections with a variety of of brilliant athletic workers and we like to talk to them and amplify their voices as much as we can so we asked them about the sort of racial dynamics that exist in the NCAA, which we've talked about a lot in other pieces as well. And we got their takes on how they perceive and how they experience um, the structure of the NCAA and the racial dynamics that kind of go with it. And what we kind of found by listening to them um, was kind of stark. And they said a lot of brilliant and powerful things about their experiences as campus athletic workers in an inherently racialized system that is a system of mass exploitation of predominantly black and racialized bodies by white men, predominantly by white people. So we're engaging explicitly with people like Billy Hawkins and the New Plantation, people like Cedric Robinson, and talking about racial capitalism. And in many ways, March Madness, in many ways, the NCAA system are perfect um, sort of analogies for what they're talking about. And Billy Hawkins talked about the NCAA in in his work, highlighting how it is this new plantation, the NCAA or, or collegiate athletics and things like the prison system are new plantations by which predominantly white folks extend power, um, reify power relations, re- reify economic exploitation, and systematically steal wealth from racialized communities. And that was the whole genesis of the piece. And what these athletes said, it was just so heartbreaking on the one hand to hear hear how they experience this system, but also brilliant to see and to listen to them and uh, how they make sense of this and how they negotiate these dynamics themselves as athletic workers, as people who want to play a sport, who love playing sports, who love playing whatever sport it is they uh, play, but also want to see a change in the system, which is what I think ultimately we can all agree on. We like sports. I I think a lot of people like sports, but we want to see a massive, massive change, uh, a revolution, if you will, in collegiate athletics.
0: In your article, you quoted several athletes' some of college athletic workers. Some of them were anonymous. You guys also quoted former college athletes and who also briefly played in the NBA at University of Wisconsin star Nigel Hayes. So I, that was one of my first Molotov MVPs that I did in my <laughs> podcast because I read your article and I was glad to see that he was quoted in there because he went to college. I think he might have played all four years, but he had a brief stint in the NBA, but now he's playing in Europe. Mm. But Just this past week with the Final Four ending, we saw some bad takes from people discussing the Gonzaga star player, him hitting that game-winning shot. I saw some tweet talking about, oh, maybe it's not so bad to play for free in college basketball. That was like essentially what these tweets were saying, because he hit this shot. Where else would he get this exposure? Yeah. He should be getting paid. He just made a lot of money with arguably one of the greatest Final Four Leather Beater shots in history.
1: Yeah, I mean, like... the I I also saw those takes those like oh it's this looks like a lot of fun was one of the tweets that that we saw um, and I think sports media is like really bad at this like they always go back to like oh these opportunities are wonderful like uh, campus athletic workers want to have they're having fun and therefore that justifies the mass exploitation and that is complete bullshit to us that is complete uh, it, it's. It's a complete um, sort of distraction from what is actually happening. Of course, sports are fun for the most part. Yeah. Of course, like athletes want to play. But that doesn't like just because something is fun doesn't mean you can reify a system of exploitation and not pay them market value. Do coaches coach for fun? Like no. <laughs> should should coaches in the NCAA? That, and, and that's the immediate rebuttal to that like
0: yeah okay, that's like the should... perfect example to compare the situation the college coaches are not going to coach for free they could talk about all this oh i love my players my students my school but they're not going to coach for free
1: absolutely and and then and, like, and they're
0: uh, not going to they're going to get try to get coached for as much worth they can get so why can't the college athlete that's actually playing the game profit as well?
1: Exactly, and, and Daniel Libet actually FOI'd. Um, if you follow him, Daniel Libet on Twitter, uh, he F-O-I'd Oh yes, had- I
0: just, I just saw that tweet.
1: Yeah, like he, he FOI'd hundreds of, of NCAA departments and highlighted that like Jim Harbaugh pocketed 250K from Downey.
0: That's not his salary from coaching. Exactly. Just, he's making money off his likeness.
1: Exactly. Like he, he's able to seek out whatever market that market conditions will pay him, both in terms of his coaching. He can he can leave and, and accept a job somewhere else. He can also get endorsements as as much as he wants. But campus athletic workers can't do any of that. In fact, they, there's all these transfer rules that make it difficult to even move if, say, you're not getting playing time or if you no longer are vibing with the coach or no longer want to play there or want to go back to whatever reason it could be. The NCAA unilaterally sets all these conditions that make that more difficult. Not only can you not seek out any market value in terms of compensation, but you also don't get any choice in, in terms of if you want to play somewhere past your commitment.
0: Which doesn't make sense because, all right, when I was a college student, if I don't want to keep going to this school, I could transfer to another school. Well, there's some process in doing it, but it's not like with the college athletes where they make it very difficult, put this, all these bureaucratic steps to make it very difficult to transfer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and like, I can't think of anytime I, I engage with people, I always ask them to, to consider any other place where adults they're of the age of 18 or older are sort of not allowed to capitalize on their market value. There's v- very few if any, things that I can think of um, that exist that we we control the market value for their labor and the collegiate system is one place where we do that. Why do we do that? Because we have this like obsession with distinguishing, Uh, well, uh, an obsession with money, first of all, Mm -hmm. um, on on the part of collegiate athletics. But we also have this odd preoccupation and commitment to this fake concept of amateurism Mm -hmm. that was created by a person in order to prevent workman's compensation for injuries like playing on a football field. So it was created to dodge Mm -hmm. that and to make sure institutions weren't liable to pay for these things. And it has remained relatively intact in the exact same way since the 60s, since when this idea was created. And the 1960s, there was no game day, Home Depot game day, Pepsi, blah, blah, blah. There, there was not this massive commercialization that we've seen. Well, all
0: the bowl games are named after corporate sponsors Except or the, the stadium,
1: Whatever it is, like the... And yeah, and... and and that—that's the the NCAA tournament, um, or the NCAA brings in like over a billion dollars in revenue. A lot of that is the NCAA March Madness tournament.
0: Yeah, We're I think talking- I saw in your article. Sorry, you. you I think 18, 2018 and nineteen, the NCAA Power Five conferences made eight point three billion in profits.
1: It's stark. It is one of the biggest and most obvious and most explicit forms of racial capitalism that exists. And the most obvious forms of mass exploitation of racialized community members, racialized people. And that, like, I, I truly do think, like, 50 years from now, I know this is a trope and people say this a lot, but 50 years from now, we're going to look back on today and be like, what the fuck were we doing? Yeah. What dude. the hell were we doing? What was wrong with us? and we're in that moment now.
0: Especially like, okay, I might be an anti-capitalist, but we're in a capitalist society, right? And all these capitalists talk about, you got to make your money and profit. But here, there's one of the most profitable industries in the whole country, the NCAA, not just sports. And they don't let the actual people making them the money profit from it. Where else in the United States, where are you going to None of us want to get not get paid to work. We already struggle to fight for just wages in normal uh, working class society. But here's college athletes not getting paid a dime. And all their excuses are, oh, you, they get a scholarship, which is worth like 50000 And then most of them leave school early or, you know, have struggle, even struggle with school because they have to put so much time into their actual athletics where they spend 10 hours, 12 hours a day practicing, dealing with, they don't even have time to study. -hmm. So just that whole premise of them, oh, they get a scholarship is also bullshit. Like Yeah, they're not even getting a quality education because you're using their labor for your profiting off their sport.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things that I, I often tell or when I'm talking to people about this, I often use the, an anecdote that I experienced. So I was at, um, a, the university of South Carolina and I was teaching, mm-hmm. I was teaching a class where lots of students were, um, campus athletic workers. And one night I it was late at night. I was working on my P on my dissertation and I turned on the TV and I noticed a team was playing. Um, and I was like, this can't be live. It's past midnight. It was live. It was, it was a game. Um, that was in the fourth quarter, and it was past was it midnight. Football
0: or basketball?
1: It was. Uh, it was basketball, okay, and and yeah. The next morning, they had to be in my class at eight thirty. Wow. How can we expect? And this was an out of state game. How can we expect that education matters in that? How can I expect those students to come into class and not be sleeping and and not be tired when they have to come home? I'm I'm up for a reason but like I'm in my room I can go to sleep whenever I want yeah these, these are athletes playing a, a a game for the university out of state and they have to go the next day to, to class and then on top of that we pull them out of school for a month and in March and April when uh, the go, <laughs> and just rip them out of school um as they approach their final examinations um or final papers like yes students first, athletes second. It, it's it's all just a, a, cr- a system created to steal wealth from those communities. Those yeah, should be the, professional players.
0: The only other s- system I see in this country that does pretty much the same thing is the US prison system. Yeah.
1: yeah. And that's the point that Billy Hawkins was making in the new plantation, right? Like he was saying that these two terrains are the new plantation they are the way in which white supremacy operates in canada or in the in um, north america sorry Mm -hmm. that the these two terrains are how white folks systematically steal wealth from predominantly black um, and racialized communities and that is it's it's obvious that that is the case it's so explicitly obvious and it's shocking to me that like this is even still a debate, that like we still debate these things. And it's people,
0: 2021.
1: <laughs> that's what exactly <laughs> 2021. And these people, like a lot of people, will say like, "Oh, we can't start paying campus athletic workers because then it would be professional. Then it would be a professional league."
0: Like college football is literally like the minor leagues of the NFL. Like to not think of it any other way is just yeah.
1: And on top of that, it's like in the United States, the United States is an advanced capitalist system. Mm -hmm. They love treating people as professionals. Professionalism is like the preeminent thing that they celebrate. It's the, the central figure of the quote unquote American dream. What is wrong with that? What is wrong with treating campus athletic workers as professional athletes? Why is it this setting where we say, no, you're amateurs? Why is this this setting where we say, no, you can't be a professional? If the market is there to pay you money, you should be able to capitalize. That is capitalism and full stop. I am a critic of capitalism, but that's our system. So you can't on one, one side say, no, nope, you're amateurs. And then every other setting, you say, no, you're a professional. We want you to earn as much money as possible. And and. Be seek out your market conditions. It just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah. So e- even like let's say a grad student that might be a TA, they already don't get paid their proper wages either. But even they get a salary out of it.
1: Yeah. I I was yeah. earning a salary when I was at the University of South Carolina. Like, I was I was paid, um, and that was my market value determined by a market that I agreed to ahead of time. And if I sell a book in, if I write the best book in the history of the world, um, in I, while I'm an undergrad or a grad student, I I can sell that. I can Mm -hmm. earn royalties on that, and it's it's just it's it's sheer utter hypocrisy. It makes no sense. It's just we justify this mass exploitation system because we like it because people don't push on the NCAA maybe they're starting to, maybe not. We can talk about that. Hmm. But it's because people aren't pushing on the NCAA. Policymakers, Other than, and we're starting to see some rumblings of policymakers and, and politicians pushing on the NCAA and potentially Supreme Court pushing on the NCAA to change some of these things. But until that happens, it's just going to be the same old thing. And um, I think we need a, a, a social realization that... There needs to be a revolutionary change to not just co- college athletics, but higher education in society at large. We need a, a fundamental reconfiguration of how the college athletic system works, which will render contemporary college athletics possibly uh, unimaginable. It will render it like you, you, It just will make it unseeable right now. Like it won't be the same. And with that, we have to also revolutionize higher education. We have to revolutionize the ways in which we admit people. We have to revolutionize the ways in which we support our students when they're in university. Um, we have to revolutionize the funding models. We have to de-disnification, de-disnify the campuses and make it less of a sort of quote-unquote playground and more of an institute of higher education as it should be. Um, and we need to move away from like treating public education as like a harm and as this thing that we have to like be in austerity mode and and view it as a public good. That's the whole project that we're kind of fighting for.
0: Yeah, it's all it's all entangled. So that was kind of one reason I decided not to pursue my PhD. If if people don't know I have a master's in applied anthropology, I didn't pursue my PhD because one of my fears was not being able to find a job after I graduate. Some people are able to, but a lot of people can't. And then you work as an adjunct and don't get paid your proper wages or get the benefits. And it just been more difficult to even get uh, more professors to be working because all the money goes to pretty much all the top high earning sports coaches and the administration. To me, it's all like you're saying, this is all connected.
1: Yeah. And and like I would say like it it also goes to this like Disneyfication of our campuses. Like we are not funding public education. Mm -hmm. We're funding gyms. We're funding big stadiums. We're funding um, big new buildings and residence buildings to get people onto that campus because the attraction is things like football, things it's, like basketball. Go ahead.
0: It's just like the professional sports stadiums. The NCA is trying to claim, um, you know, we, we're amateurism. We don't, we're, this isn't professional sports. But then all their money is going to sports and building these cathedral stadiums, mm-hmm. these training centers, these billion-dollar facilities that's just the same. That's exactly the same thing that a professional sports team would do when they try to get a new stadium or build brand new facilities.
1: Yeah, it's too late. People yeah. say that, we, they, that these aren't professionals. It, it's already professional. In every way, it's professional. You, you charge audiences money to watch. You sell jerseys. You sell tickets. You sell broadcasting rights. You pay coaches. Absorbent salaries over ten million for the highest paid coaches in football and basketball. It's already professional, except you have a monopsony over the labor force, and you have decided to cap uh, as a cartel. You've decided to cap the wages at zero um, or at just over zero. So it, in the in the end, it, it's already professional. Whether whether or not you want to say accept that. That's on you, but it's already professional. It's just professional exploitation
0: still on the same topic, but a little transition, but we you talked about you know now some of the politicians in the court system is trying is actually kind of opening up to this whole sham of the NCAA. Could you talk about NCAA versus Austin for those who don't know about that?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I should preface, I'm not a legal expert. I'm not, I wouldn't even say I'm an expert in this particular court um, case. But basically, um, the campus athletic workers have been pretty successful over the past, um, I would say since 2014, um, with bringing class action lawsuits against the NCAA um, based on the Sherman Act, um, based on antitrust law. And the claim has sort of spiraled or, or snowballed around the central notion that the cartel or member institutions of the NCAA are getting together and setting or violating antitrust law by kind of setting the price um, for campus athletic workers, whether that be no payment, whether that be after the Edo banning case in, in 2014, whether that be like adding Um, certain cost of living analysis, cost of living bonuses or cost of living. um, I don't know what the the actual uh, concept there is to what we're seeing now, other forms of remuneration, like paying for computers and paying for musical instruments. So we're starting to see like a snowballing effect um, where they're bringing NCAA players. It started with Ed O'Bannon's class action lawsuit and is um, gone into Sean Alston's and, and Justine Hartman's um, class action lawsuit um, that basically is building more um, of a base to find ways to pay campus athletic workers. And last week on March 31st, um, they uh, the Supreme Court heard um, opening arguments and heard arguments from both sides in the appeal of NCAA v. Um, Alston and were awaiting word from that, but by all of the sort of people who were in the room or are observers, um, it seems like the justices are hearing campus athletic workers in a way that maybe they haven't in the past, um, which is, I think, surprising. I will reserve any judgment until after they come out Mm -hmm. with with their decision. It, It represents another step forward in this Incremental change, which i I am of the opinion that we need a revolutionary change. That this th- is nothing in the grand scheme of things. This is something that should have happened thirty years ago. Yeah, but it's obviously better than not- than zero movement. But we need to start thinking. Okay, what's next? Where do campus athletic workers go after this? And how do they? Do we as Fans, we as onlookers, we as critical scholars, help amplify and support campus athletic workers going forward to move beyond the 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 question of name, image, likeness. To move beyond the question of like cost of living allowance. To move beyond like the 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 basically, I I think they're distractions to not pay campus athletic workers their fair share. These are minor things like peanuts. In the mm-hmm. grand scheme of things, to as we argue on the end of sport, to move to, que- or or supporting athletes to form unions, to support a broad, massive labor movement in collegiate athletics, um, to actually see some real change beyond this incremental stuff. Because I've said previously, I view name, image, likeness as like the a, a great distraction here. It's it's so incremental in the grand scheme of things.
0: Yeah, because still they're still not going to be getting a actual salary. Yeah, it's kind of like what the coaches are doing, where they go get some extra money while they, but they actually have a salary.
1: Yeah, yeah, and like what we're seeing, we're what we're seeing with name, image, likeness right now is states are viewing this as a way to provide competitive advantages to their institutions to their universities
0: and like, like in, california correct
1: california florida they're passing um, name image, image likeness rules to allow for these things and then the universities ucla usc florida florida state can then turn around and use it as a recruiting tool which is i like i think that's like inherently that's just reifying the problems that's yeah. just making it worse by you are providing Athletic workers with more, uh, with with more remuneration, but you're not actually dealing with the structure. You're not actually dealing with the system. It's it's a band aid, exactly, Mm -hmm. and and that's that's what I think. Like my my take on all these things, it's like these are band aids. These are like you're providing peanuts. You're trying to distract public attention away from the big debate, which is let's like actually talk about campus athletic workers' rights and their rights begin. With one, a seat at the NCAA table to advocate for their own rights, two, to be able to unionize, to be a labor market like anything else, and three, to be a labor market, to be an actual market where you can seek out value, seek out whatever value that means, and all of the other things will sort itself out later in terms of other sports, who gets money. If you're going to be a capitalist system, you have to be a capitalist system. You can't just be capitalism until suddenly you're socialism in this one setting or you're, yeah. you're capping, you're controlling one particular market. It doesn't make any sense.
0: And even with NCAA versus Alston in the hearing last week, just to hear all the conservative judges yeah. actually, you know, supporting the athletes should get paid, but that is the position they should take because they're capitalists, right? You would That's, think, right? <laughs> yeah, you would think. So even hearing those judges who I freaking hate on the same side as me, it was kind of weird, but.
1: It was, it was a little bit surprising <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, I wasn't in the room, so I, and like, I'm not I was listening it the to the re- audio. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm like, I, I was, I had it on. I was, I was kind of paying attention to it. Yeah. I, I it was shocking. It's, it's one shocking, but um, I guess we'll see where it goes in terms of what they actually rule. I'm very curious to see. And like I think what we've also seen through the last few years since uh, since the O'Bannon case and in this case is the sort of chiseling away at the 1984 um, Board of Regents versus Oklahoma or, Oklahoma or NCAA versus the Regents of the Board of uh, Oklahoma or whatever that case was, that kind of Set the stage for the amateur clause like the 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 amateurism precedent, if you will. Okay. and Ed O'Bannon, what we saw with Ed and the with that case was uh, judge Wilkins kind of cracked down on the use of that as a defense. and I think we're seeing that again chiseled away in this, and soon we're going to be like amateurism is no longer even a legal concept. I hope that is a that's what's kind of next. It's no longer. A even legal concept that can be used in a, in a court to, to mean anything. And if folks are interested in learning more about, I think that Andy Schwartz on Twitter, he's a wonderful economist and, and legal scholar. And he's he's written a lot on this. He uh, is kind of leading the way in, in many respects with highlighting how this is sort of legal precedent. So I'd urge people to check that out because he's the expert. I'm just a mere sociologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not a legal scholar.
0: And then also in Congress, there's a bill, the College Athletic Bill of Rights would be a 50% share of profits. And the AP did a survey that came out on April 1st. They surveyed, it was all Power Five Conference uh, athletic directors, but they surveyed 357 and 69% opposed the 50% share profit model because one of the bullshit reasons that a lot of these people use is, uh, oh, what about the other sports? If it wasn't for football and basketball making all this money we wouldn't be able to fund all these other sports it's just that's one bullshit. of their arguments it,
1: it, it's just bullshit yeah you might not be able to fund it in the same way like you might not be able to send a golf your golf team to hawaii before the season starts and, and with like all expense paid trip <laughs> like you're trying to spend money these institutions are trying to spend all of their money and if you try to spend all your money you can spend all your money like the argument there's a lot of nuance to this argument victoria jackson um prof at um, arizona state university is the person on this at history runner on twitter uh, and she you, absolutely she is the person to follow uh, when it comes to this discussion of revenue versus non-revenue and title nine and all of these other concerns but like absolutely like other sports would be affected by this we wouldn't see Buses, for instance, you won't have like a volleyball team or like a a badminton team. You're not going to have like a a bus or you're not going to have all expense paid trips. But I'd argue you shouldn't have that anyways in an institute of higher education. You shouldn't have like the the most of everything because they're trying to spend the money because you can you there's a there's a there's it's hard to accept revenue blindly as uh. A university, particularly when you think a lot of these institutions are public, so you can't like have massive revenue coming in. So what do you do instead? You build crazy stadiums every year. You reinvest in stadiums and locker rooms and buses and trips and pay for all of these things to hide the the revenue. So it actually looks like the books aren't that balanced, and and you're not making that much money. But it's actually just because you're disnifying your campus, you're making your campus a Disney attraction to get students to come. And there are so many ways to spend the money. And and I think there's a lot of precedent to show that one, a model where college athletes are allowed to profit from their name image likeness in other contexts works well. Like Patrick Ruby just wrote a piece on how the NAIA, how campus athletic workers have been able to profit off their name image likeness in the NAIA, and it's working just fine.
0: There yeah, I think I saw a recent article. I can't remember the athlete's name. It was like one of the women's college basketball players. She just made money off some video from her Instagram or something. I can't remember what the name of the article is, but I just saw it yesterday. But I'll retweet it later when I post this podcast episode.
1: Yeah, like there there's so there's so many opportunities that campus athletic workers just don't even have access to. And, and if they did, they would be in violation of the cartel's rules, and then they would face like repercussions, not only to their playing time, but also their character, right? We can't forget that the NCAA has been super successful in uh, criminalizing, I'll use that word, uh, or deviantizing Mm -hmm. um, athletes who accept monetary gifts or accept some sort of remuneration outside of NCAA rules. We saw it with Cam Newton. Um, We've seen it with so many people that this stain on their character for accepting like, I don't know, a taco or a tattoo, (laughs) 50 bucks from somebody that the stain follows them and their, their character is questioned all the way into the pros if they're so lucky to make it there. And that's not okay either. Like that's part of this system too. And that, that makes the media and the professional, um, organizations complicit in this whole thing too. Um, I think I
0: remember a few years ago it was Ohio State quarterback uh, Terrell Pryor. Mm-hmm. He got a free tattoo for signing an autograph or something, and that got him in trouble. And, and I he was such a star player in college, but I, I feel like that might have contributed to his NFL career not going the way he wanted. Besides skills, because he had, like you're saying, he had that stain.
1: It, it's and and that I think is also a racialized thing. I mm-hmm. think we can talk about how like. How black athletes will will get that worse than uh, than than white athletes, and I think that all of these things point to the racial dynamics here, right? All of these things point to the control, who controls and who is controlled in certain contexts, and who benefits and who is not allowed to benefit because of the rules that are put in place. That is systemic racism. That is an explicit example, um, the NCAA and this whole cartel system is an example of systemic racism that we need to take seriously and call it for what it is. And I don't think people get that when they turn on March Madness or watch college football. They don't see racism. And if the NCAA will have it any other way, they name their courts like equality and like brand their, Mm -hmm. they, they come out with statements to make it seem like it's not. But the structure itself is racist. The structure itself is gendered, is classist. It's created to serve that purpose. Cedric Robinson talked about this in terms of racial capitalism. This is racial capitalism. And until we start talking about that, I don't think we can even begin to scratch the surface on getting rid of this exploitation. I don't I don't think we can even scratch a surface on on moving forward and revolutionizing the system beyond incremental changes like pay for name image likeness or allow campus athletic workers to go back to school later on or allow um, them to transfer or, or whatever. And yeah, that, I speaking
0: that, of transfer, uh, Dick Vitale just had a <laughs> terrible take on Twitter.
1: I tweeted, I, I, think I, I quote tweeted, it. I said, I don't even need to comment on how bad this take is because it's brutal.
0: Yeah, I'll read it real quick for those who did not see it. It was just today. We're recording on April 9th. This will come out next week. But this was Dick Vitale's tweet, quote, this transferring all over the place is going to destroy our great game. The NCAA should think twice before officially making it that players can transfer without sitting one year. The chaos going on is sickening. Only should allow players to transfer without sitting when a coach leaves, end of quote. But someone pointed out that Dick Vitale like left programs like three out of four years during his coaching career.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Translation, we set the rules and you should be grateful to us for those rules and any resistance to those rules or any way in which you can benefit yourself is not allowed. But coaches can do whatever the hell they want. And he even says coaches, that's the time. So that's the moment that you can change when a coach who's given free reign to go wherever they want. And oftentimes after a very large buyout um, that happens, if they get fired or something, they're allowed to leave whenever they want for whatever opportunity they can but the campus athletic worker can't. That is about control. That's about authority. And I would argue that tweet itself contributes to this system that I'm talking about, to the, the, the racial dynamics of campus athletic workers and highlights the complicity of mass media and sport, the sports media industrial complex in this whole thing. They don't ever critique the system.
0: They don't. A lot of those coaches and analysts are just talking heads for the NCAA.
1: Yeah. And then they really promote some really damaging and in, in some cases, violent things. Um, and it's, it's brutal. And again, I think we, we need to consider the sports media industrial complex and the NCAA as one and the same. It's part of the exact same system. So when I'm talking about the NCAA system, I'm not just talking about member institutions of the NCAA that make up the NCAA, their coaching staff and athletic departments. I'm le- like legitimately talking about higher education Universities, states, policymakers, governments, uh, media, the scribes that go with media, the people who promote it—the everything—is part of this system. So, the sociologist, of course, I'm going to say it: like mm-hmm. the structure of this whole thing mm-hmm. just reifies, and we saw it. For the last month, we saw it um, in March Madness.
0: And then we saw the gender differences from the NCAA where, you know, the men's tournament had this great workout gym, whereas the women had, didn't even look like a high school gym, to be honest. Like, it was terrible. And then some of that argument from people was like, well, NCAA women's and WNBA women's sports isn't as profitable. But that's also a lie because even this past tournament's ratings were up and they made money. And Axios just put out an article about how college athletes could make money off their likeness. And ten of the top twenty were women college basketball players. Mm. I think number one was Paige Beckers of UConn. Yeah. yeah. She has seven hundred and thirty thousand followers, but they estimate she could have made at least three hundred and eighty-two thousand dollars off her likeness. Yeah. So for yeah. them to even argue that women's sports isn't profitable is also bullshit. It's
1: bullshit. And like there's there's so many gendered things that have that have gone on the last month. Not only did we see the the obvious like I wouldn't even call it oversight. I I would just say that the gendered approach of the NCAA in terms of their how they take the women's game versus the men's game and just put all their money into one and not into the other was so obvious with that gym stuff. With Sedona Prince um going through and, and highlighting their their lack of exercise gear to all the way to like the end when we see the Cinderella story of Oral Roberts, which uh Hamal Javeri wrote a brilliant piece on the problems with treating with forgetting Oral Roberts' brutal history of like anti LGBTQI plus people and and it's so problematic to like just forget about that and treat them as a Cinderella story, to ultimately the men's championship going to another anti-homosexual institution like Baylor University Mm -hmm. um, who still has anti-homosexual Things written in their student code of conduct. So we saw so many different manifestations of
0: all these contradictions.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. It's so obvious when you peel back some of the onion and actually take like a, a little bit of you don't even need to be burn it all down. You don't even need to be like, oh, like so anti-capitalist. You just need to like be a critical thinker for like five seconds to see the problems here. And the compounding problem, and um, yeah, like the the past month in in collegiate athletics have just brought so much to the fore that I think we need to we need to have a reckoning with ourselves um, as society, both at the individual and the structural level. Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's no way to think about it other than then think about the ways in which we're complicit, the ways in which our friends and our family are complicit, but also think about the things that are out of our control that uh, are quote unquote bigger than us and and the, the structure, the ways in which our own fandom, for instance, is structured, the ways in which we, we often have very little like agency when it comes to like being someone invested in the NCAA. Mm-hmm. But the moment you can realize that is when you can start being reflexive and start being like, okay, this was conditioned in me. Like this, I was conditioned all through my life to enjoy this sport. So maybe I can uncondition that, right? Maybe that can, maybe there are ways in which I can support campus athletic workers or do minor resistances that will build into something bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only way we'll see, again, non-incremental changes if there's a sort of social or cultural shift to realize all of our complicity in this, but also our power as people, as political actors, to be able to push on a system like that. I just went mm-hmm. on a rant. A oh, that was rant. a beautiful rant. <laughs> <answer. laughs>
0: The way I look at that is, okay, I used to be, well, I didn't know I was a pro-capitalist, but the way I was conditioned growing up, like everybody growing up in the U.S. or Canada in a capitalist society... I didn't know any better, but I, you know, I learned some things now I'm radicalized. I I call myself, I'm a communist, but like I was able to, you know, recondition myself away from that and to be critical of capitalism. So I think it's also possible with sports. And it's kind of one reason I wanted to do this podcast because I love sports, but I also want to be critical of it. And one thing that actually kind of taught me that I could kind of actually live without watching sports, even though I'm watching again and I love watching it the pandemic when it was gone for a while i realized hey it's not so bad it's not the end of the world that i'm not watching sports
1: yeah yeah and we that- like we literally named our podcast the end of sport for that reason like that we were we were exist we we're starting the podcast in a time where there was no sport we were i think also coming to in similar ways um nathan and i we started it without johanna johanna joined a little bit later and nathan and i when we first started it we were talking about how this moment is like shedding light on on the things we've been thinking and things that have been percolating in our mind. Like, okay, what would the world look like without sport mm-hmm. if there was an end of sport? And then, bam, the pandemic hit, and there was the end of sport. But then we took a literal. We were just like, let's name the podcast that because it's kind That's of awesome. perfect. It's a it's a good time. It's a good moment for that. But we were grappling with the same question, and in 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 many ways, like I'll admit, I grapple with this question today. Like I wear, I'm wearing a Toronto Raptors hat on right now it's cold in my basement (laughs) i'm wearing my (laughs) dodgers champions suit there is something to sports man like there is like i'm not i'm not going to ever deny that but you know what there's also all of that shadiness and Mm. all of the ways in which sport reifies the worst of society that we really need to grapple with we really need to like to push back on and and i think we're starting in some ways to see a lot of that in a variety of great brilliant powerful movements that we're seeing in sport where athletes are really taking, taking on, and they have for a long time. I'm not suggesting that this is like not new, but I think there are some, some hints of revolution, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that are brewing.
0: So about to end the podcast very soon. So one last topic I want to talk about is you and your colleagues have talked and written a lot about COVID-19 and sports. And recently, an Alabama fan, super fan, attended the March Madness tournament to watch his team, the Alabama basketball, Luke Ratcliffe or Ratliff. He was 23 years old, 23 years old, and he passed away from COVID-19 and likely contracted it from attending the March Madness tournament. Could you talk about your your guys' work on COVID-19 and sports?
1: Yeah, we, we, so we've been talking about the, the problems of pandemic sports since the beginning of the podcast. That actually turned into starting to write a bunch of like public pieces on this. Uh, and we've pu- we published one um, in Jacobin called, or I, I don't know remember what the title was, but it was basically saying that both fans and athletes are sacrificial lambs. Here, when we talk about like pandemic sport, that um, institutions in the NCAA and the NCAA as a whole is complicit in sacrificing human lives and human bodies um, in order to make money. Um, and that is, on the one hand, the campus athletic worker is obviously put at increased risk a lot of unknown risk when we talk about long COVID, when we talk about possible uh, myocarditis and heart issues, things that may affect these athletes for a very long time. But also the fan's and the students that we bring on campus on our Disnified campuses, and we pack them into stadiums to varying degrees. We saw fans uh, at March Madness. We saw it. We're, we're seeing it's, a, it's not in collegiate athletics, but we saw a packed stadium for the Texas Rangers home opener yeah. last week, which was disgusting.
0: And they don't see. even have some protocols like you don't even have to wear a mask to their they,
1: games. I think they said they had to wear masks like yeah. that, but they didn't enforce that whatsoever. And these people who make decisions, who allow those things to happen are part of spreading an infection that we don't know how it's going to impact people long term.
0: Yeah, we, we're a year into this.
1: Exactly. We have no clue what the true risks are. So then I would argue that we also can't fully consent to those risks, because especially when we're talking about campus athletic workers whose consent is already conditioned Mm-hmm. in a variety of ways and i would argue does not exist at anymore.
0: least the pro athlete gets paid
1: yeah yeah right i'll, I'll, I'll get behind that and that like at least that these professional athletes are paid relatively well but in the case of baseball you've got the minor league baseball yep, system where true. it's like a clusterfuck um in terms of their remuneration so it's not universal across the board you also have people in the in the nba who don't make 30 million dollars a year mm-hmm. um so there's a continuum there. So that's why I think focusing on collegiate athletics, that's where it's obvious. That's where it's like so pervasive and so poignant of an example that there's no there's no counter argument there. In the pros, you can say, yeah, okay, they're professional. They're getting paid. They, they're getting paid to take on additional risk. Fine. Police officers, firefighters, they get paid to take on additional whatever. But when we're talking about unpaid campus athletic mm-hmm. workers... That is an obvious example where we're just sacrificing these bodies. Why? Because we're bored through a damn pandemic. We're bored with quarantine. We need March Madness. Is our quote unquote normal? We want to get back to normal because our lives matter. I, that was not a play on on all lives matter or anything. <laughs> I, I should just be very clear there. It was just the words I used. But like because we're bored, we want to see, we want to watch these things through lockdowns and quarantines, and we want to be normal. But we forget of all the people who are affected. And spe- like the campus athletic workers are the people, the fans. But also, I I keep raising the point on Twitter, what about the people who are secondary infections from those people who are in the stands? What about the tertiary infections from those people? What about the, the person who, who's infected six people removed from someone who gets yeah. an infection? We will never know those people. We're
0: They're not going to know all. their COVID story.
1: We're not gonna know their story. They're gonna they're going to be a, a statistic and an aggregate that looks like a, a million people die. They're gonna be forgotten. They're never gonna know we're never gonna know that those people were affected by our return to play
0: to sports. Yeah, there's we no way to- we could trace it back.
1: Yes. And who are these people going to be? They're going to be service workers. They're going to be
0: staff. They're going to be the ushers, concession workers, ticket takers, security. Exactly.
1: And where, where does COVID tend to go um, at, at the sort of structural level? It tends to go into racialized communities. The racialized to...
0: and working class communities. Exactly. Mm-hmm.
1: exactly. And those stories aren't going to be heard. And that's my problem with return to sport in general, all sports. If you have fans there, you're contributing to this. It doesn't matter if if you infect one person because of sport, you don't know how many infections are later on in that. You don't know how many people will die as a result of that. And that's my big problem with with sport as we kind of go through this pandemic. And I think we need to talk about these things because we're not. We're not talking about. There's fifty, forty thousand people at that Texas Rangers game. How many people are going to catch COVID? How many secondary infections? It's just.
0: I'm like, they're it, not even trying to do social distancing.
1: No, no, oh, and I, it, it was it was a point of Texas pride, if you will. Like it was it was taken as a point to like show show the world what Texas thought of COVID, and it was led by like the the governor of that state, like. Yeah doing the, getting rid of mask mandates, all these things. It was just, and and, like, to some degree, you want, you want to blame the people you want, like your first instinct is like to blame these people, like the fans who went, but like, I want to reposition the focus explicitly on the people who make decisions, who allow that to take place. It's not the fan first that I would condemn. It's not the consumer of something that I want to condemn. First, I want to condemn the structure that allows that consumption. That's the Marxist critique, if you will. Like, I want to take the system down, not the individual. I don't want to responsabilize individuals. I want to tear down the system.
0: And that's exactly what corporate individual responsibility bullshit's all about in American culture when it comes to capitalism. Because <laughs> we, we don't just see that capitalism. in sport. Yeah. We saw it when BP had their oil spill. Exactly. And then, oh, or with recycling. Oh, it's up to you, the individual but not the actual system and those people in power who are in charge of these systems.
1: Absolutely. And, and like we see it in higher education in general, like mm-hmm. all these universities say, come back to campus, stay on campus, live in residence, do live the campus experience. We're going to provide you with a safe, amazing, like perfectly safe place. And then there's an outbreak in a student residence and university administration, administrators blame the students for partying, for doing all of the things that they do as students that you knew they were going to do. You kind of want them to do, even though you might like condemn it. In certain, you want them to live that experience because you want them to be consumers of your product, which is residents. And then you're going to blame them. It's just neoliberal responsabilization. Mm-hmm. It happens everywhere. And I want to avoid doing that. And I want to instead... Launch my critique. And I think my co host on End of Sport would agree. Launch the critique at the structure, at the cartel, at the NCAA.
0: All right. That's a good way to end our podcast today. Thank you, Derek. For coming on, could you please plug in your podcast and your work again before we go?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for for having me again, co-host with Nathan kalman Lamb and, and Johanna Mels of the End of Sport podcast. You can check us out at End of Sport Pod on Twitter or Instagram or www.theendofsport.com.
0: Awesome. Thank you, Derek, for coming on. And this is not the end of podcast. As always, I'll be ending the podcast with a new Molotov MVP segment. Thank you, Derek, for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me, Miguel. Thanks.
0: Another segment of the Molotov MVP, where each episode I award a Molotov MVP to someone in sports who lights that cocktail and tosses it back at enemy lines, creating a spark. Today's Molotov MVP is five-time NBA champion and one of the greatest head coaches in history, Spurs head coach Greg Popovich. On Sunday, April 11, 2021, in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota, near Minneapolis, while the George Floyd trial is going on, police officer Kim Potter murdered Dante Wright, a 20 year old black man. Dante Wright was pulled over for having an air freshener, hanging from his car, and being wrongfully accused of stealing a car. Brooklyn Center police chief stated that Kim Potter accidentally shot her gun instead of a taser. Potter is the president of the police union and is a 26 year veteran who should not be making this mistake. Greg Popovich on Monday said, it just makes you sick to your stomach how many times does it have to happen? As sick to our stomachs that we might feel that into individual is dead. He's dead and his family is grieving and his friends are grieving and we just keep moving on as if nothing is happening. Justice for Dante Wright and Greg Popovich, thank you. You're the Molotov MVP. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sports as a Weapon podcast.